Okay, good afternoon and welcome to the San Francisco Planning Commission hearing for Thursday, January 11th, 2024. Happy New Year, commissioners, as well as members of the public. To enable public participation, SFGovTV is broadcasting and streaming this hearing live, and we will receive public comment for discussion and action item items on today's agenda. Each speaker will be allowed up to three minutes, and when you have 30 seconds remaining, you will hear a chime indicating your time is almost up. When your allotted time is reached, I will announce that your time is up and take the next person queued to speak. Please be advised that we are no longer accepting remote public comment without advanced requests for reasonable accommodation. For those attending um, here in City Hall, please line up on the screen side of the room or to your right for the item you are interested in. Please speak clearly and slowly, and if you care to, state your name for the record. Finally, I'll ask that we silence any mobile devices that may sound off during these proceedings. And at this time, I'll take roll. Commission President Tanner. Here. Commission Vice President Moore. Here. Commissioner Braun. Here. Commissioner Diamond. Here. Commissioner Imperial. Here. Commissioner Koppel. Here. And Commissioner Ruiz. Here. Thank you, Commissioners. First on your agenda is consideration of items proposed for continuance. At the time of issuance, there were no items proposed to be continued. However, now, um, under your discretionary review calendar, item 14, case number 2023-002390 DRP for the property at 426 Fillmore Street, Unit C, uh, your loan discretionary review today is uh, being requested to con be continued to March 14th, 2024. Uh, so with that, we should open up public comment for um, the continuance calendar only on the matter of continuance. In the chambers, please come forward. Seeing no request to speak, Commissioner's public comment is closed, and your continuance calendar is now before you. Thank you. Commissioner Braun? Move to continue item 14. Second. Second. Thank you, Commissioners, on that motion to continue item 14 to March 14th. Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commission President Tanner? Aye. So moved, Commissioners, that motion passes unanimously 7 to 0 and places us under your consent calendar. All matters listed here under constituted consent calendar are considered to be routine by the Commission and may be acted upon by a single roll call vote. There will be no separate discussion of these items unless a member of the Commission, the public, or staff so requests in which event the matter shall be removed from the consent calendar and considered as a separate item at this or a future hearing. Item 1, case number 2015-016326CUA-02 for seawall lots 323 and 324, modification to conditions of approval. Item 2, case number 2023-008213CUA at 555 Pacific Avenue, conditional use authorization. Item 3, case number 2018-011446CUA-02 at 399 Fremont Street, modification to conditions of approval. And item 4, case number 2022-011378CUA at 310 through 320 Dolores Street, conditional use authorization. Members of the public and commissioners, if this is your opportunity to request that any of these consent calendar items be pulled off and heard under the regular calendar later today need to come forward seeing no requests to speak 
public comment on your consent calendar is closed and it is now before you. Commissioner Moore. Uh, move to approve. Second. Second. Thank you, commissioners. On that motion to approve items under consent, Commissioner Braun. Aye. Commissioner Ruiz. Aye. Commissioner Diamond. Aye. Commissioner Imperial. Aye. Commissioner Koppel. Aye. Commissioner Moore. Aye. And Commissioner President Tanner. Aye. So moved, commissioners. That motion passes unanimously seven to zero. Commission matters, item five, land acknowledgement. Thank you. <coughs> The commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatushaloni, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatushaloni have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland and we wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatushaloni community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Item six, consideration of adoption draft minutes for December 14th uh, for both the joint and regular hearing. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on their minutes. Again, if you're in the chambers, you need to come forward. Seeing no requests to speak, commissioners, Public comment is closed and your minutes are now before you. Move to adopt the minutes. Second. Thank you. On that motion to adopt the minutes, Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? He's not here right now. Oh. <laughs> Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commission President Tanner? Aye. So moved, Commissioners. That motion passes unanimously six to zero. Item seven, commission comments and questions. Great. Just want to welcome everyone back to 2024. Happy New Year, everyone. Um, hope you all had a restful holiday season. Um, I know also it's flu, uh, RSV, COVID season. I had a little cold as well. So I'll be wearing my mask intermittently today and um, just invite all those who want to just to remember and be mindful um, of illnesses going around. And if you are sick, do please stay home. That would be great. Um, and I just also have to, it's a little out of our region, but congratulate the Michigan Wolverines on the national championship. Go blue. Very exciting day uh, on uh, this last Monday and the Monday before, uh, great way to kick off the new year. So thank you all and happy new year. Commissioner Moore. Uh, happy new year. Uh, the flu season is back and unfortunately uh, I got flu over the holidays so did the rest of my family, not lots of fun. But it kind of made me think that uh, would we consider potentially uh, leaving uh, the idea of uh, remote public comment for the public available to the end of March till we're through with it. I heard that historic preservation as well as the BIC have decided to do that. I'm just throwing that out as an idea because it is a little bit tight here and lots of people potentially sneezing uh, and being in this room is not helping any of us. I'm just leaving that out as an idea uh, and like to hear if anybody else wants to comment on that. Um, well, just to clarify, the, uh, the Historic Preservation Commission hasn't acted on their remote public comment yet. They only continued it to their next hearing okay. next week. Anyway, uh, some people are raising the issue because of colds, which are really indeed going around. There's no doubts about it. Uh, I'm just uh, uh, adding a cautionary note here. Thank you, Commissioner Moore. Commissioner Braun? 
I would just say I think from the comments I shared about this this topic uh, in December, I'm certainly open to reopening remote public comment, uh, whether that's through March or whatever whatever we can kind of get. Um, but since we voted on it, I assume we would need to um, maybe agendize it and vote on it again. Yes. Any other comments on that topic or other topics? Commissioner Ruiz? I'll just share my support. I was also sick over the break and I also have a little baby at home. So I personally would be appreciative of moving forward with that, but I understand if that's too complicated for administrative purposes, then fine. But if all other commissioners are supportive, I don't see why not. Jen. Just for further clarification, we would not be able to provide for commissioners to attend remotely. No, we understand that. Okay. Well, perhaps we can talk about it at our next officers meeting, um, Catherine, and maybe schedule one off schedule um, and decide what we want to do. Right. Right. Thank you. If there's nothing further, commissioners, we can move on to department matters. Item eight, director's announcements. Um, item nine, review of past events at the Board of Supervisors. Um, I don't know if there's a report from the Board of Appeals from the Zoning Administrator. It looks like there is. The Historic Preservation Commission has not yet met this new year. Good afternoon, uh, Commissioner Zarin, Star Manager of Legislative Affairs. Happy New Year. Um, this week, the Land Use Committee considered Supervisor Melgar's landmark designation for the Westwood Park entrance gates and pillars. Westwood Park entrance gates and pillars were designated, or sorry, designed by renowned architect Louis Christian Mulgart. Um, they were constructed in 1916 for the developers Baldwin and Howell. Uh, the pillars are eligible for local designation for association with the development of San Francisco residence parks in the early 20th century. They are also eligible because of their status as excellent examples of landscape features in public rights of way common to residential park developments and as instances of work of an architect of merit. <clears throat> the designation was introduced by Supervisor Melgar and initiated by the board on May 16th of last year. The HBC unanimously recommended approval on November 15th of last year. Um, at the land use hearing, Supervisor Preston expressed concern about the landmarking, um, what he described as symbols of exclusion and racial injustice. Westwood Park, like Ingleside Terraces, Richmond Heights, and many other resident park developments included restrictive covenants dictating what owners could or could not do to their lots, as well as who could or could not own, lease, or reside in the neighborhood. These covenants included mandating existing single-family residences, um, side yard clearances, street setbacks, and racial restrictions that prohibited non-whites from living or owning property. Um, Supervisor Pe Preston indicated that he would not support a positive committee recommendation, um, <laughs> nor would he vote yes at the full board. As a result, the Land Use uh, Transportation Committee forwarded the item to the board without a recommendation. Then at the full board this week, uh, the fleet charging location and partial delivery service ordinance sponsored by S Supervisor Chan passed second read. Um, eliminating public art requirement for 100% affordable housing projects passed its second read. Uh, the two landmark designations, one for the Chata Gutierrez mural and one for the Carnival mural, both passed their second read. And um, the exemptions from limits on conversion of production, distribution, and repair, institutional community and arts activity uses in the Eastern Neighborhood Plan area, sponsored by Supervisor, Supervisor Dorsey, passed its second read. And that's all I have for you today.
Good afternoon, President Tanner, Commissioners, Corey Teague, Zoning Administrator. The Board of Appeals did meet last night. They only had a few items, and the only one that was somewhat of interest to the board was a um, um, an appeal of a permit for a state ADU, um, and it was really a scenario where if the project met all the requirements of the state law, the city had very little discretion but to sign off on the permit. Um, it was kind of an educational process for the, I think, for the neighbor and for some of the board members as well, but ultimately, um, the appeal was denied unanimously and that state ADU was allowed to move forward. Thank you. Okay, if there are no questions, then we can move on to general public comment. At this time, members of the public may address the commission on items of interest to the public that are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the commission, except agenda items. With respect to agenda items, your opportunity to address the commission will be afforded when the item is reached in the meeting. Each member of the public may address the commission for up to three minutes. When the number of speakers exceed the 15 minute limit, general public comment may be moved to the end of the agenda. Hi, two or three. Okay, great. Happy New Year to you all. Um, I'm apologizing for the seven emails that I sent last week with the attachments, but I want to make a point about the issues that fall under <clears throat> the umbrella of Planning Code Section 317 when reviewing speculative projects like shown in the examples. While there were only 13 examples in the seven emails, individual projects can represent the larger issues at play, particularly for speculative projects. Some of these issues overlap. Um, the micro can be the macro, and it's hard to know what 2024 will actually bring. But it does seem like the Commission's powers regarding housing will be greatly reduced, and therefore, that also means that the public's role in housing issues will be reduced, and the staff will be very busy. The Commission could still adjust the demo calcs using their existing legislative authority. Making them more stringent is important, particularly in the priority equity geographies. The Commission could codify the flat policy with objective standards that preserve flats in their original location and configuration within the structure, including hallways that define the use and layout of each flat. The Commission could encourage more scrutiny of alterations or demolitions excuse me, to preserve UDUs, not just currently slept in, but if they are viable, sound, livable space that may have been occupied in the past and more importantly, could be occupied in the future. <clears throat> Under the Section 317 umbrella, there is so much overlap between the demo calcs, the flat policy, and UDUs, as shown in these examples, I think. Tantamount to demolition projects like the one on Jersey that may have had a UDU, and the 28th Street project that vaporized an existing UDU. Projects that merge flats over the past decade, and even right now, becoming pricey single-family homes. I hope that the Commission and staff will please look at these examples going forward, particularly with the upcoming rezoning. This is housing, homes with UDUs or residential flats that may be the most financially feasible, as alluded to in previous reports on densification. There are lots of questions about the RENA numbers, and there are profound demographic changes coming in the next decade. Thank you, and Happy New Year. And there's 150 words for the minutes. Have a great day. Uh, 
Good afternoon, uh, Commissioners. Tom Radulovich with Livable City. Happy New Year. It's 2024. New, new day, new start. So, um, uh, Commissioner Diamond, I think at the last board meeting that I was at, you asked this question after the report on the state legislation and how all these new projects are going to be ministerially approved. Well, what will we do? Uh, <laughs> what should we do? I have some ideas, uh, more than I can share in three minutes, but um, let me get started here. I might send you an email or show up at public comment again. But um, one of the things I'd love you to do is plan. And, and I'm not being snarky to say you should plan. I know you're a planning department. I know you have lots of planners. but. Having observed this department over many, many years, decades now, um, I feel like you're on the back foot a lot of the time. You spend more time reacting than you do planning uh, forthrightly. And I kind of think back a decade and a half when you know, better neighborhoods, there was Eastern neighborhoods, there was better streets plan. There was a lot of foresighted, what should we be doing? How should we be planning the city? And I think um, in the last few years, maybe the last decade or more, it's been much more you're reacting to either things the state is making you do. You know, we have a housing element update because the state made you do it. We don't have a transportation element update after 30 years because the state hasn't made you do it, even though that's really important. So there's, you're reacting to the state, you're reacting to the Board of Supervisors, um, you're reacting to the mayor, so um, you're not initiating a lot of legislation. You know, when I was on the BART board, I worked with a lot of different planning departments. They, a lot of planning legislation in other cities comes from the planning departments themselves, you know, rezoning ordinances and all of that. They're, they're coming out of planning here. Um, uh, the department seems rather reticent to do that. So, um, so that's part of the culture. I think you can change that. Again, 2024, new year. We can do things in a new way. Um, I'd rather it came from you. You know, you're very thoughtful people, all of you, everybody who works for the department. It would be better if it came from you than from the board or from the mayor, as much as I like them or don't. Um, you're the planners. You have good thoughts. You can put this together. So be more proactive. The other thing I'd say is, um, you know, you need to revive public realm planning. 25% of our city is in the public right of way. 25% of our city's land area. Nobody's planning it. You know, there's public works, there's MTA, et cetera. It's like the blind man and the elephant. I mean, those departments are very narrowly focused, single purpose. Projects tend to be single purpose. Nobody's looking at the public realm altogether. So, you know, listening to these conversations about how to revive retail, for example, um, you know, kind of look at North Beach where I was visiting. It's a very highly regulated commercial district. It's thriving. Downtown, tumbleweeds. There's something you need to do beyond deregulation, and I think it has to do with the public realm. So please think about reviving the city design group, being the planners, right, who plan the public realm, working with all those different agencies will get better results. There's a lot of really important things, whether it's climate or housing or equity or neighborhood commercial development, um, where we need you to be proactive and engaged uh, and planning. So hopefully it'll be you know, less fewer backyard appeals, fewer projects coming before you, and you can do that kind of planning, have, lead those public conversations. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, seeing no other members of the public in the chambers coming forward, we did receive one request for reasonable accommodation. Um, so I'm going to unmute this person, even though they're logged in anonymously. So unless it's Sue Hester, I'm going to mute them immediately. Uh, this is Sue Hester. I would like to concur with the speakers from the commission who spoke about the need to have a new vote on uh, public comment, pardon me, public input by phone. Uh, Supervisor, Commissioner, I recognize this is blue season. That was acknowledged as well by more. It's really harmful to a lot of people to come down to Planning Commission at City Hall. 
they have fiscal limitations and they have a bunch of reasons why they can't. So you should go back, take a vote again on extending the public role remotely hybrid burns. Put it on the agenda next week or the week after. This is the only hearing you've had that's no remote calling, it's only me. Uh, it's not the way to go. Other commissions, like the, uh, their planning commission is stopped as of right now. The HPC may be next week, I have no idea. Board of Appeals has continued the item for a couple months. And OCAI, which is the successor to the redevelopment agency, and the entire Board of Appeals is doing remote, that all their committees, everything. So you're not breaking a lot of ground. You're being reasonable. Look at this as an ex exercise to make decisions yourself with the maximum input. Uh, there's no longer any ribbon going across the bottom of the hearing on SFGov TV, which is where you call in. I got it because I asked for it, but it shouldn't be this ridiculous. So I agree with Commissioner Braun and Ruiz and Tanner Moore Ex to put it on the agenda and expend the, expend the ability to call in remotely. Thank you very much. Okay, last call for public comment. Seeing no additional requests to speak, public comment is closed, and we can move on now to your regular calendar, commissioners, for item 10, case number 2023-010059, PCA, for fleet charging planning code amendment. Good afternoon, uh, commissioners. Joseph Sackey, Planning Department staff. Uh, the case before you today is an ordinance which proposes amending the planning code to require conditional use authorization for converting private parking lots or vehicle storage lots in all production, distribution, and repair districts. Uh, the ordinance is sponsored by Supervisor Peskin's office, and prior to staff's presentation, I believe Sonny Angiulo uh, from Supervisor Peskin's office is here to present. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm actually just hoping to give the commission a heads up that um, in consultation with planning, we've been considering a couple of amendments uh, that we will take up at land use committee and would love your input. Uh, one is a grandfathering date to ensure that those DAs submitted prior to today's planning commission meeting are exempt from the application of the new law, given that they have already initiated their process under the expectation that the existing law is gonna be applying to them. Uh, the other is a clarification or tweak to a perceived loophole in the noticing requirements under section 311. Our office's read of the code is that a building permit application to change a use to fleet charging in PDR districts does not require 
public notice. A Section 311 public notice for a change in use to fleet charging is required in only very limited areas of the city, such as certain eastern neighborhood zoning districts, including UMU and WMUG zones. And those areas already require a CU for fleet charging anyway, but there are areas in the PDR zones that do not require public notice, and also as a, as a result, I believe, don't require CUs. So we have been discussing with planning department the potential requirement that a building permit to change a use to fleet charging in every zoning district should require Section 311 public notice, uh, even after this, even though after this loophole is closed, a CU would be required in all areas for fleet charging anyway. Um, planning has advised that we think we could do this through a footnote. And so I uh, would love to get your input and thoughts on that today as well. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ms. Angelo. I'm Joseph Sackey, uh, Planning Department staff again. Uh, so in terms of the, what the ordinance will accomplish, as detailed in the case report, fleet charging presently requires a conditional use authorization in the districts where the use is allowed. However, within PDR districts, with the exception of PDR1B, as in Boy, properties where the existing use is a private parking lot or vehicle storage lot may be converted to fleet charging as of right. The subject ordinance proposes removing this provision, thereby requiring a conditional use authorization for all fleet charging projects, regardless of zoning district or the existing use. Uh, the department recommends approval of the ordinance as written. Um, the amendment that is, was referenced in Ms. Angelo's presentation um, was presented to us yesterday, and so we've had some time to consider it. I don't feel comfortable making a staff recommendation on it uh, at this point, but if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer uh, within my ability. The basis for the recommendation of the approval of the, the ordinance as written uh, is that it would not change the zoning districts where fleet charging is an allowed use. It applies to a limited number of sites and importantly closes a potential procedural loophole through which fleet charging could be permitted by submitting two over-the-counter permits in sequence, one to establish a vehicle storage lot and a second to convert uh, to fleet charging. Uh, as an intensive land use, fleet charging facilities may be appropriately placed in PDR districts, which are already developed with heavy industry and automotive uses. However, the conditional use authorization process allows for the evaluation of fleet charging projects' uh, equity effects within the context of individual sites and larger patterns of application geography. Um, requiring a conditional use authorization for all fleet charging projects would create a uniform approval process with a consistent degree of scrutiny applied to all projects. Uh, thank you very much for your attention, and I available to answer any questions. Okay, we should open up public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item. Again, if you're in the chambers, please come forward. Good afternoon, commissioners. Mark Leeson here. I'm with uh, Teamsters Joint Council 7 and our community and trade union partners uh, in our review and, and continual interest in uh, fleet charging in San Francisco. Uh, we represent, of course, uh, logistics and delivery, parcel delivery drivers, uh, not just in San Francisco, but throughout Northern California. Um, our interest is, amongst other things, uh, safety in the workplace and the kinds of workplaces that are going to be put together uh, for workers uh, that we represent and even those who engage in this trade, uh, but we don't represent. It's very important to us. Uh, the uh, specific uh, amendment of, uh, for posting, we're also very much in favor of as well and look forward to, to that being accomplished. Um, 
And for you know more detail, we have uh, our council uh, who's been working on this project very diligently, uh, Peter Zeblack, and uh, he will come uh, next and speak and uh, give us some more detail. Thank you. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Peter Ziblatt, Land Use Council to the Teamsters Union Joint Council 7. Uh, as Mark alluded, we're here to speak in support of this legislation, um, primarily because conditional use requirements exist across the city for fleet charging in almost every zoning district where fleet charging is allowed. Obviously, some districts, zoning districts, fleet charging is not even permitted. But in those districts where it's allowed, it's conditional requires conditional use approval, primarily so it receives the scrutiny that it deserves because there's been an uh, acknowledgement by this commission and the board and I think the community at large that fleet charging has externalities, impacts that go beyond traditional other uses such as you know traditional vehicle charging at Whole Foods or what have you. But these are facilities that sometimes operate 24-7, that have a large volumes of cars coming in and out. We know that autonomous vehicles are a large part of this. And because of that, conditional use approval should be required universally in PDR zones for fleet charging. Right now, there exists a loophole we call it footnote 24, and it's only for land use practitioners like myself who would dig far enough down into the code to realize, hey, there's two types of exceptions. One is if a property has established vehicle storage or a property has established as a, as a use or has established private parking lot. In those instances, an applicant can come right in, file a building permit, change the use to fleet charging in these, these exceptions, exceptional circumstances, and that uh, permit is approved without any scrutiny. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's been, uh, the consequence of this is that it's been taken advantage of by, we suspect, somewhere between a half dozen, maybe more, applicants who have specifically chosen these types of properties to establish fleet charging use, precisely because it doesn't go through the, the uh, scrutiny that a conditional use hearing would uh, apply. And on top of that, uh, planning staff just alluded to, there's even, it, it gets even more arcane in that an applicant can conceivably come in and change a use with a building permit to a vehicle storage lot, for example, with no intention of establishing vehicle storage uses there. But it's a two-step dance. They come in, file a building permit application for to change the use to vehicle storage use, change the lot to vehicle storage use, and then subsequently, immediately, come in with a building permit to change it to fleet charging use without going through conditional use approval. It's a loophole that should be closed. It would give consistency, I think, to the community at large, I think consistency to the users at large, and it would allow this commission to review applications universally in PDR zones for fleet charging. All right, thank you. Last call for public comment. Seeing no additional requests to speak, public comment is closed, and this matter is now before you, Commissioners. Thank you, staff. Thank you, Ms. Angula, for being here uh, as well. Um, certainly, I think reading the staff report was pretty straightforward and very clear, so thank you all for um, just making things very concise. Um, you know, we've seen a lot more about AVs uh, since we last uh, we first considered this legislation as a commission in previous you know, iterations. So I think we've learned a little bit. And I think um, certainly the argument that I find most favorable towards the legislation in the staff report is creating consistency because this is the one kind of area, the one type of land use that does not allow 
does that require conditional use? And if we're going to have a conditional use, I don't really see the problem with noticing. We're already in taking the application, reviewing it, um, so providing public notice for a conditional use. I think that is an appropriate time to provide conditional use when we're doing things as of right or you know things are don't require um, <clears throat> discretion. It maybe doesn't doesn't warrant having um, as much notice. So I'm certainly uh, amenable to that uh, amendment as well as to allowing applications that are kind of already filed and on their way through the process. It makes sense to allow those to continue while kind of making the this land use consistent with other fleet charging um, processes throughout the city. I'll call on Commissioner Koppel. Uh, thanks to all involved. I'm definitely in support today. Uh, just to keep things simple, I would... Uh, like to just stick with staff's recommendations, but uh, do want to acknowledge the the possible issues to come up later, and uh, I definitely could be supportive of the grandfathering and noticing, um, but I will make a motion to approve with staff's recommendations. I'll second that motion. <coughs> Commissioner Moore? Uh, Commissioner Koppel, does that include uh, Ms. Aguilo's uh, recommendation for the loops, closing the loophole? For the CU? Yes. Uh, I thought we could address the planning issues now, but discuss that to leave it open for later. Okay, so, so, so they will have now, that though. as a footnote to determine later, because I, I'm sure in the end, when planning looks at this, loopholes are all throwing us for a loop when we have to decide on something which we overlooked. So if somebody catches a loophole, let's discuss it, leave that with those who need to discuss it, but support what's in front of us mm -hmm. with uh, hoping that that other thing will resolve itself on its own. So my, my, I, I support your motion as a second. Oh, great. great, thanks. I think we gave uh, perhaps Ms. Angulo and the supervisor the feedback that they were looking for, staff as well, to just go forward and um, close the loops that we need to. <laughs> all right, thank you all. If there's nothing further, commissioners, there is a motion that has been seconded to approve with staff modifications on that motion. Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commission President Tanner. Aye. So moved, Commissioners. That motion passes unanimously, seven to zero. And we'll place this on items 11, 12A through E for case numbers 2019-021884 ENV for the Petrero Yard Modernization Project at 2500 Mariposa Street. Uh, first, you will consider certifying the environmental impact report. Um, and then you will consider um, adoption of findings, general plan amendment, planning code and zoning map amendments, adoption of shadow findings, and the conditional use authorization for case numbers 2019-02-19-021884-ENV, GPA, PCA, MAP, SHD, and CUA, respectively. Enough letters, you think? <laughs> All of them in the alphabet. <laughs> Good afternoon, commissioners. And before we get started, I think we have Anna Herrera here from Supervisor Ronan's office to give you guys a quick little speech on the project. She's not here, so <laughs> we will get started. All righty. And SF Gov TV, yeah, thanks. Oh. All righty. Uh, good afternoon, President Tanner, Commissioners, Gabriela Prentoha of Department of Staff, and current planner on the Petrero Modernization Project. 
Uh, before getting started, I'd like to give you, provide you a quick breakdown of the items before you related to the project at 2500 Mariposa Street. In total, six items are before you. Um, number one, certification of the final EIR under CEQA. Number two, adoption of CEQA findings, a statement of overriding consideration. Oh, and if we want to, and it is here now, <laughs> we want to go back to her. <laughs> yeah, why don't we pause the staff presentation and yeah, welcome. okay, welcome. Thank you for being here. Sorry, I'm late. Oh, no worries. You're right on time. Farther walk up the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Welcome. Uh, good afternoon, commissioners. Just give me a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Anna Herrera, legislative aide to Supervisor Hillary Ronan, uh, District 9. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to address you today. Um, I am here to offer Supervisor Ronan and our office's enthusiastic support for this project. Um, we were fortunate enough to have the Potrero Yard be redistricted into District 9 in 2002. Sorry, 22. Um, and I just want to note that District 10 Supervisor Shimon Walton has also co-sponsored our special use district ordinance and has been a major proponent of this project as well. Um, the Potrero Yard modernization rebuild will combine the modernization of the outdated Potrero bus yard with new construction of hundreds of units of 100% affordable housing which Supervisor Ronan and our constituents believe is the biggest need in our district. It's a groundbreaking approach that we hope will deliver on both sustaining our public transit system and providing much needed affordable homes to our working families. We're grateful to the SFMTA, planning staff, the Potrero Neighborhood Collective, and Potrero Neighborhood Working Group for all of your hard work to get to the project to this point. And I just wanna highlight the broad community support for the project from the Calle 24 Latino Cultural District, the American Indian Cultural District, to the San Francisco Transit Riders, the Sierra, Sierra Club, and nearby homeless prenatal program. It's also critical to have the support of neighbors on the neighborhood working group and Friends of Franklin Square, with many other additional noteworthy supporters. Thank you again. Thanks, Anna. Okay, so we'll jump back in. Yeah, okay. So we're just giving a quick rundown on the items before you today. Uh, like I said, certification of the final EIR, adoption of CEQA findings, consideration of general plan amendments, consideration of planning code text and noting map amendments, adoption of shadow findings pursuant to planning code section 295, and a request for a CU for a PUD, a planned unit development, pursuant to planning code sections 303 and 304. And now I'll turn over my presentation to my colleague, Jennifer McKellar, the environmental planner on the project, who will summarize item one for you. Thank you, Gabby. Um, good afternoon, President Tanner and commissioners, Jennifer McKellar, department and environmental department staff and environmental review coordinator for the Potrero Yard Modernization Project. The first item before you is a certification of a final environmental impact report or EIR for the project. Mr. Keller, could you speak a little closer to the microphone just so we can hear you better? Sorry. Okay, thank you. Okay. The first item before you is the certification of a final environmental impact report or EIR for the project. The project consists of two versions, a preferred project known as the refined project and a variant known as um, <clears throat> the paratransit variant. 
The primary difference between the two is that the refined project would construct housing on the roof of the new replacement transit facility, whereas the paratransit variant would construct maintenance and storage uses for SFMTA's paratransit fleet and limited housing adjacent to and on the roof of the new replacement transit facility. Both versions of the project were analyzed in the EIR. The refined project proposes up to 513 residential units, whereas the paratransit variant proposes up to 103 residential units along Bryant Street only. Instead, instead using the podium level to store and maintain approximately 160 SFMTA paratransit vehicles. Following demolition of the existing transit facility, the project would be constructed in three phases. Phase one would construct the new transit facility. Phase two would construct the housing along Bryant Street up to the podium level and the commercial uses at the corners of Bryant and 17th Streets and Bryant and Mariposa Streets. Finally, phase three would construct the remaining housing on top of the podium, podium or if construction of the remaining housing proves infeasible, the project would pivot to construct the paratransit level and remaining Bryan Street housing. Next slide. A copy of the draft EIR certification motion is before you. The draft EIR was published on June 30th, 2021. The public hearing on the draft EIR was held on August 26, 2021. The public comment period closed on August 31, 2021 and the responses to comments document was published and distributed this year on December 13th, or this past year, December 13th, 2023. Subsequent to the publication of the draft EIR, the project was refined and a new variant added. Chapter eight of the responses to comments document, or RTC, includes a description of these changes, as well as analysis of the environmental impacts. As described in the RTC, there would be no change to the impact conclusions in the EIR as a result of these project modifications. Also, a typo in one of the impact statements in the draft EIR has been corrected. An erratum memorandum has been provided in the commission packet, was provided in the commission packet last week that clarifies this information. I've also in, um, added extra copies of the memorandum for members of the public. This minor change does not present any new information that would alter the conclusions present in the draft EIR. Consequently, the Radom does not trigger the need to recirculate the draft EIR under CEQA. The, the department has received three comments in response to the publication of the RTC, which included questions and comments related to shadow, air quality, noise, and secondary parking impacts. The emails do not raise a new environmental issue that has not been addressed in the EIR. Next slide, please. I will now briefly summarize the project impacts. The project would result in a project level significant and unavoidable historic resource impact because it would demolish the existing Petrero Trolley Coach Division Facility Building, which is eligible for inclusion in the California Register of Historical Resources. The project would also result in a significant and unavoidable project level and cumulative air quality impact because it would expose sensitive receptors to toxic air contaminants during construction and operations. However, I would like to clarify that the EIR analysis determined that these air quality impacts with mitigation applied were less than the significance thresholds. The impact determination conservatively concluded a significant and unavoidable impact because one of the results was close to the significance threshold. 
The final EIR also finds that the project would result in significant impacts with respect to construction noise, construction vibration, operational noise, construction air quality related to criteria air pollutant emissions, wind, tribal cultural resources, and paleontological resources. However, it finds that these impacts can be mitigated to less than significant levels. Next slide. Alternatives. The EIR analyzed a reasonable range of alternatives to the project to address the significant and unavoidable impacts related to historic architectural resources and air quality. In addition to the no project alternative required by CEQA, the EIR includes three alternatives. A full preservation alternative, which results in a less than significant historic impact and reduces the significant and unavoidable air quality impact to less than significant with mitigation a partial preservation alternative, which reduces but does not eliminate the significant and unavoidable historic impact. However, the partial preservation alternative reduces the significant and unavoidable air quality impact to less than significant with mitigation. And finally, a transit facility plus commercial only alternative, which still results in a significant and unavoidable historic impact, but reduces the significant and unavoidable air quality impact to less than significant with mitigation. The Historic Preservation Commission considered these alternatives in a public hearing on August 4th, 2021, and determined that the EIR analyzed a reasonable range of preservation alternatives that would meet project objectives. Next slide. Planning staff recommends that the commission adopt the motion before you that certifies that the contents of the final EIR are adequate and accurate and the procedures through which the final EIR was prepared comply with the provisions of CEQA the CEQA guidelines in Chapter 31 of the Administrative Code. Implementation of the project, which includes the refined project or the paratransit variant, would result in significant unavoidable environmental impacts that cannot be mitigated to a less than significant level with respect to historical resources and air quality. Therefore, the Commission would need to adopt a statement of overriding considerations under CEQA should the Commission choose to approve the project. I and other environmental planning staff are available for questions. I will now turn the presentation back over to my colleague, Gabriella, who will provide more detail concerning the project. Thank you. And just to recap, aside from certification of the EIR, the items before you and the actions that must occur for the project to proceed are as follows. Um, adoption of CEQA findings, a statement of overriding consideration, MRP. Uh, recommendation to the Board of Supervisors to approve general plan amendments that would amend the urban design element map 4 and urban design element 5. Recommend that the Board of Supervisors approve planning code text amendments to create the Petrero Yard Special Use District at the subject property and add PY bulk limits within planning code section 270. And zoning map amendments um, to illustrate the Petrero Yard SUD and to change the height and bulk from 65X to 150PY. Additionally, um, it would be, the project would need adoption of shadow findings pursuant to Planning Code 295, uh, that the new shadow cast by the project and paratransit variant would not be adverse to the use of Franklin Square Park. And lastly, approval of a CU for a PUD, PUD pursuant to Planning Code sections 303 and 304. The ordinance, as substituted by the Board of Supervisors on Tuesday, January 9th, will create the Petrero Yard SUG, which will permit residential uses via CU for a PUD, permit ground floor uses 
for commercial uses consistent with the UMU zoning district, provide building standards including setbacks, lot coverage, point of height measurement, and mass separation limitations, and permit a freestanding and window sign for SMT SFMTA's identification signs. Next slide. Turning to the proposals, proposal specifications, I would like to mention that the proposals before you for entitlement has changed slightly from that analyzed in the EIR as a result of refinements to the design for both the project and paratangents of Berrien. The numbers outlined in red indicate those numbers that have changed. The most prominent of these changes is the decrease in the number of dwelling units from 513 to 465 in order to accommodate additional family housing dwelling units. As first described by Jennifer, the Petrero Modernization Project includes two proposals, both of which will deliver approximately 2,886 square feet of commercial space, street improvements, a public restroom at the corner of 17th Street and Bryant, and most notably a state-of-the-art facility that will accommodate SFMT's current and future needs. Occupying the first four levels, or 75 feet, um, and provide space for both bus maintenance and operation and administrative needs of SFMTA will be the bus facility. Where the proposal differs is in the contents of the uppermost 75 feet of the building. Under the project, the joint residential development between SFMTA and Petrero Neighborhood Collective, PNC, will occupy the uppermost levels entirely with 465 dwelling units, open space, and residential amenity spaces. Whereas the paratransit variant will extend SFMT's facility onto the fifth level for additional approximately 23,000 square feet of area for SFMTA's paratransit division and construct 104 dwelling units within a 13-story building along Bryan Street frontage. You can go to the next slide. As clarified in the provided red line um, CU motion, while SFMTA's facility is a central component of the Petrero Yard Modernization Project, project, the project sponsors do prefer and intend to deliver all 465 dwelling units in the project proposal at an affordable rate. Thus, the paratransit proposal will only be pivoted to after the completion of SFMTA's paratransit facility and after a specified time frame by which all readily available funding sources have been exhausted to construct the additional units beyond 104. Additionally, the project sponsors have confirmed their intent to explore the construction uh, for infrastructure for e-bikes within the building. As the project was described, it reflects the culmination of over six years of neighborhood outreach work by both SFMTA and PNC, which began in 2017. Since 2017, SFMTA and PNC have worked collaboratively with stakeholders, including the public, SFMTA employees, and affordable housing advocates, and held over 140 outreach sessions in the form of meetings with a uh, created specific working group called the Petrero Yard Neighborhood Working Group. The robust neighborhood outreach is further reflected in more than 20 letters of support that we've received since the publication of the packet, including letters from the Sierra Club, Calle 24, SF Transit Riders, and Friends of Franklin Square. Many media members of the public and sports say the project's ability to provide public benefits like street improvements, a public restroom, improved transit, and working conditions for SMTA, and affordable housing as reasons for their support. 
It is important to note that the Joint Development Partner is actively negotiating with S7TA and other city agencies for the delivery and operation and maintenance of the project. And the conclusion of these negotiations will result in multiple transactional documents, including a project agreement that will both memorialize the affordability of the project and the timeframes for which the project can then pivot to a paratransit option. Today, the department has received one correspondence expressing concerns for potential shadow impacts for the immediate neighborhood. The project is located across the street from Franklin Square Park and will cast a new shadow. However, on December 21st, 2023, the Recreational and Park Commission held the public hearing and recommended the Planning Commission adopt findings that the net new shadow on Franklin Square Park would not be adverse to the use of the park. In conclusion, the department recommends approval with conditions and believes the project and paratransit variant are necessary and desirable for the following reasons. They are on balance and consistent with the general plan and planning code section 101 findings as detailed in the draft resolution for the proposed general plan amendments. They will contribute to a greener, more sustainable and reliable transportation in the city. They will help make public land available for housing, particularly affordable housing, and thereby further the city's goal of providing housing on a public land. The project will maintain and increase job opportunities for the city and provide much improved and safer conditions for SFMTA's employees. And this concludes staff's presentation and I'm available for questions, including uh, Matt Snyder and some of other colleagues who've worked on this project. With that, we should um, hear from the project sponsor and through the chair, you'll receive 10 minutes. All right. Um, hello, commissioners. My name is Bonnie Jean Von Crow. I'm the public affairs manager for the SFMTA's Building Progress Program. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to present the project and address some of the themes from the questions that we received when we were before you in October. Next slide. Uh, I wanted to highlight that the project provides a new bus yard for the SFMTA, which will prioritize strong public transit, which is one of the most important uh, tools we have to fight climate change. Um, by improving efficiency and working conditions for SFMTA frontline staff, um, buses can be repaired faster, and improving Muni's reliability for the community. Uh, additionally, improving working conditions for staff is a key priority for the SFMTA as current staff is working in a 100-plus-year-old yard. Um, the new yard will be phase one of the project and will accommodate 54% more buses, which Muni needs for its fleet. Next slide. Uh, public input, as uh, Gabby had mentioned, has guided this project from the start, and we've been engaging the community since 2018, um, and that's when we established the neighborhood working group that you've heard from in many of the letters. Um, feedback from the community has influenced everything from the design guidelines of the project, which set the outer envelope that, an that was analyzed in the draft EIR, um, as well as input on the most recent design. Um, we've had more than 150 outreach meetings and public tours and events over the years for this project. Next slide. 
Of course, housing is a key part of the project, and the refined project maximizes the housing units and affordability, and that's the primary alternative. Um, as Gabby mentioned, while we're entitling up to 465 units, um, the environmental did analyze 513 units, and that difference is really due to the difference between, um, for the Bryant Street housing, a shift from affordable senior housing to affordable family housing, which has bigger, um, bigger units, more bedrooms. So the bedroom count really remains the same for both, uh, both um, versions. Uh, for the housing, um, it is designed as affordable housing, so the affordable family housing is up to 80% uh, area median income, and then the what we're calling the workforce housing is 80 to 120% AMI. And we are, this is a view of the workforce housing on the podium, and we are creating, working to create a preference for SFMTA frontline staff to live there. Next slide. Uh, here you see um, the phasing of the housing portions. Uh, as I mentioned, the bus yards phase one of the project. And then the Bryant Street housing you see there on the left is phase two. Um, and that housing maximizes uh, the number of units that we can do within that outer envelope for that portion. And then phase three is the podium housing. And you see the affordable podium housing there on the western side of the podium, the workforce housings on the eastern side. But that western side of the affordable family housing will be able to um, be integrated with the, uh, we're working to integrate that with the phase one Bryant Street housing so that some of the infrastructure like the elevators, stairwells can be utilized for both projects. Next slide. Um, we have had questions, and this may take a while to load. Uh, we have had questions previously about the paratransit variant, and uh, the SFMTA really views that variant as a backup use for the roof of the bus facility. Given the nature and timing of housing financing in the event that podium housing cannot be financed and built in a reasonable time frame, uh, this backup allows the roof to be fully utilized for an important transit function for the paratransit fleet. Uh, the Bryant Street housing, as you see, is included in this variant and is designed, though, around the specifications and needs of the bus yard. Um, and because this is a transportation-related use, it does allow the SFMTA to be able to fund up front the increased structural strength of the roof that would be needed to support the housing um, or the paratransit option and provide extra time for that housing to be built and to reimburse those costs. Next slide. But, you know, just to confirm, the housing above the bus facility is the primary intended use. Next slide. Um, we also had comments previously about the importance of street level activity at the, at the facility, and the project does support active transportation um, through uh, enhancing the city's existing 17th Street bikeway with a proposed class four protected bike lane on that block, as well as improving a number of the crossings around the facility for pedestrian safety. Next slide. Um, looking directly at 17th Street, there'll also be spaces and infrastructure for vendor kiosks across from the park, and the bus facility there on 17th does feature a glass wall, which allows the community to look in and still see bus operations happening. And that glass wall will actually be a public art opportunity as well. Next slide. Uh, and then here you see the entryway for the SFMTA um, uh, to the yard, as well as there's another entry on the other side. But those entryways also really activate that street level frontage, as well as um, there's a small retail space here and a public bathroom in close convenience to the park. 
Next slide. Um, here you see those two art opportunities on 17th Street, and there's a third one as well on Mariposa Street. And that's being run by the SF Arts Commission. Uh, here is an example of um, the, the entryway for the residential housing. This is the Bryant Street side. It's located mid-block, and there's one mid-block on Hampshire Street as well to activate those frontages um, as well. And then here is, there's three retail spaces at the yard, and this is the retail space at the corner of 17th and Hampshire, right um, near the park. And then finally, uh, this shows the Mariposa Street side where the MTA buses will go in and out. Um, and we've really relocated the buses and consolidated them on Mariposa, both for safety, um, away from the pedestrians and bicyclists on, uh, on 17th, as well as for greater efficiency at the yard. Now I'd like to introduce Chris Hargree from Patero Neighborhood Collective. Good afternoon, commissioners. Um, my name is Chris Hargy. I am the project manager for Petrero Neighborhood Collective and a vice president for Plenary Americas. Um, Plenary Americas is serving as the infrastructure developer part of um, Petrero Neighborhood Collective. Um, we have uh, over 60 public-private partnership agreements uh, in North America and located in, and headquartered in California. Um, as also part of PNC is uh, three affordable housing developers, Meta, YCD, and Tabernacle. Uh, all represented in the room. As well, we have a design team composed of Arcadis and YA Studios who are helping design the bus facility as well as advance the design for affordable housing. And lastly, um, we have consult a number of consultants who are part of our team, plant construction helping support with cost uh, consulting, uh, and, and Allen Group also helping with cost consulting and schedule consulting, as well as DNA communications with stakeholder engagement. Um, I do, next slide. I wanna share a little bit um, about the, in particular, the values that have helped guide PNC uh, throughout this decision-making process during this pre-development agreement phase. Um, of the five values, um, the first one is partnership to meet city needs. We are actively partnering with the city to prioritize improving transit, address critical need for housing, and provide a number of public benefits. This partnership is evidenced by our coordinating with planning staff to ensure the Petrero Yard modernization project aligns with this commission's mission by fostering exemplary design, conducting environmental analysis, preserving the city's unique heritage, and encouraging a broad range of housing. Second value, innovation. We are tasked with designing a fully constructible, seismically safe project within the established design guidelines that includes respecting the use of Franklin Square, a longtime public asset that has served the community for nearly 150 years. By presenting a design that will not have a significantly adverse shadow impact on the use of Franklin Square. Number three, creating local economic inclusion. We recognize San Francisco's small businesses are a significant sector of the local economy and form the backbone of its neighborhoods, including Petrero Hill and Mission District. We demonstrate our commitment to economic inclusion by including LBEs in our pre-development phase and will continue to include LBE participation in the design, construction, and operations phases of, of Petrero. Additionally, we are prioritizing local hiring and community-based businesses in our retail program. Five, racial equity. It is understood that infrastructure in the U.S. has at times harmed BIPOC and low-income communities. That is why we are intentional about making project decisions that promote equity. That promote equity. We believe the mitigation monitoring and reporting program included in the final ERR will create a much-needed bus yard and housing that supports the needs of a diverse city while upholding ideals around economic, around environmental and racial justice. Lastly, listening to community voices. 
Through our community engagement process, we have heard loud and clear Potrero Yard is a beloved community asset. That is why we have worked hard to promote a project design that celebrates SFMTA's storied history at Potrero, adds much needed housing, activates 17 streets while protecting cyclists, and integrates an innovative, seismically safe design into the fabric of this community. Thank you for your time. Thank you. With that, we should open up public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on this item, or these items. Uh, you need to come forward if you're in the chambers. Come on up. Good morning, uh, President Tanner, commissioners. Uh, my name is Nick. I'm with the San Francisco Transit Riders. Uh, we just wanted to give our support for this project. Uh, you know, the, this project will have a hugely positive impact on reducing the city's greenhouse gas emissions, improving equity by improving muni facilities, and providing new affordable housing. Uh, in order to meet the city's ambitious climate goals, it's crucial that we do all that we can to ensure um, uh, our public transit fleet is operating cleanly and effectively. And we, we really appreciate a project like this that. Um, uh, it really goes over the bounds of just like the commission's specific goals. Anyways, um, thanks. Last call for public comment. Seeing no additional requests to speak, commissioners, public comment is closed and this matter is now before you. As always, I recommend that you take up the certification of the EIR first and then the project entitlements. Great, thank you. Um, I wanna thank all the staff um, for the presentations, both from the planning department, from the MTA. I know a lot of years of work have gone into this. I think the timeline started in 2018, and here we are, 2023. So um, thank you all for stewarding uh, this project to this point in time. And um, I know that there are many folks who participated, thanks to the working group members who participated. I know they put in a lot of time and energy as well, and we just wanna recognize the value that that created, um, which generated you know, many, many letters of support, um, support from the Board of Supervisors, so really just a job very, very well done. And I'm very excited about this project. I have to say, uh, I was conceptually excited about having housing on top of the bus yard, but I didn't know how it was actually going to look or function and how all those different uses, which typically are separated, would, would come together. Um, but the design is really beautiful, really thoughtful, and also I really appreciate just planning for the unexpected, that we are going to do our best as a city to build this project as proposed, but we have phasing and alternatives that allow us to get really um, the best that we can, and so hopefully this is a charge to the board to Mo to others to figure out how we can finance this project so it can really come into fruition um, as that ideal project alternative. Um, again, I want to thank the staff on the EIR as well. Thank you for your very thorough presentation of what, uh, but what was found, um, the mitigation and monitoring report as well. Um, and I certainly am supportive of all the motions and resolutions that are before us, but want to hear from other commissioners first, and then we can take up the items um, as suggested by the secretary. Commissioner Braun? Yes, um, I'm also in full support of the project. I just want to raise you know, some um, thoughts and also things I'm very excited about with it. I'm very grateful for a collaborative approach that's been taken in developing this project, the community engagement that's occurred, and grateful to everyone who's participated in that process. Um, I found the sequel analysis to be very robust. I appreciate the effort to, um, uh, to work on additional alternatives for the project. Um, so it's great to see. Uh, and I just, I'm generally excited about this being an ex excellent example of finding multiple benefits for when the city needs to make an investment anyway, and um, you know, finding a way to fulfill multiple goals of, in this case, affordable workforce housing, as well as providing the new bus facility. I certainly hope we do get to the 465 
um, deed restricted units rather than 104. Um, so hopefully that can happen. The funds can be found. Um, and then, you know, I'm also really eager, eager to see the sustainable transportation investment happen, um, not just for the transit facility, but also I like that this now integrated um, improvements to the bicycle facility as well on 17th Street, which is a major east-west corridor in the city for bicycles. So, uh, yeah, in full support, and I'm excited to see this move forward. Thank you. Commissioner Ruiz? Thank you. Um, yes and yes to all the comments already shared. Um, but I just want to highlight 140 public meetings. I mean, that's just amazing. And having done community organizing, that is not an easy task to facilitate a group of residents and various stakeholders who all have different interests and in what they would like to see in a project. So I just want to really elevate that because that's so incredibly important. And I had recently just read an article of what makes good urban planning. And I feel like this project is a really good example of what is what we would like to see as a commission and a department of really coming into a neighborhood, understanding the history, working with the various stakeholders, and really ensuring that the project represents the values that the neighborhood wants to maintain. So I just think that this is a really exciting project. I really hope that you all reach the goals of 100% affordable housing. And I also um, thought it was very interesting and great, the preference for SFMTA employees. I I think that's really cool, and that's something that I will be tracking um, because that's a really great addition. So thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Diamond? I don't want to repeat. I'll just say I'm in agreement with absolutely everything was said, but I want to raise a few more points that hadn't been raised to add to the discussion. First is I'm a huge fan of this project. Um, it does an amazing job of balancing multiple needs, uh, coming up with a really appropriate backup option uh, in the unfortunate event. Um, hopefully that will never happen, that we don't have enough money for housing, but it is important to have a backup option. Um, also really love the way you have designed um, the glass front so that we can see the actual transportation functions that occur inside the building. I think that's a really important feature and commend you for doing that. But I, I don't want to give short shrift to the CEQA analysis. Um, and um, it's disturbing to me um, that we had to end up with two significant unmitigated impacts um, on the shadow and especially on the toxic air contaminants. I can't remember in the four years I've been on the commission having to approve a project that had a significant unmitigated impact with respect to TACs, or toxic air contaminants. On the shadow side, um, I understand that Park and Rec um, has determined that it's uh, not a significant impact. And um, also, just as importantly, maybe more importantly to me, friends of Franklin Square have submitted a letter indicating that they have worked with the project sponsor a number of changes have been made that enhance um, the use of the park. And so I can, well, I don't like it. Um, I really don't like it. I can get comfortable with it. Um, on the TACs, um, I have a few questions. And that's probably best for um, environmental planner, um, Ms. McKellar. I think I need reassurance um, 
that every conceivable feasible mitigation measure is being included, uh, that there is nothing out there that we are not including that might make a difference um, that's feasible. Yes, you're correct. Um, the mitigation that's currently applied to the project um, includes the requirement that um, construction equipment uses tier four engines, and this is the cleanest, tier four final engines, and this is the cleanest available engine, um, cleanest emitting uh, engines that you can possibly get. Um, I would add that as time goes on, fleets become more electrified and fleets become cleaner, so moving forward, um, it can only get better. Can you address um, the fact that it's not just during construction, but also during operation, um, that there are going to be, there's an SU with respect to TACs? Yeah, actually, I would like the opportunity to clarify. So the significant unavoidable impact um, was for construction and operations together. Um, the bulk of the emissions are, are from, uh, the bulk of the, um, um, the both of, bulk of the contribution to the health risk, which includes like excess cancer risk and PM 2.5, that's how we measure them. Um, they, the bulk of that is from construction, the construction activities. We did analyze health risk. Um, we always do this, um, but we don't always report it. We, we did analyze operations only, and that is less significant with, on its own with mitigation. So it's an important point of clarification that this significant unavoidable uh, impact uh, with mitigation impact is, is for construction and operations taken together. I'm, I'm a little confused. <laughs> operations only. So once it's built, finished being built, and it's now occupied, there is no um, ongoing SU with respect to TICs? Can't, I can't quite put it that way. I'll just kind of explain that when we, we do, uh, during, for the health risk, we, run two, we ran two scenarios. So we look at um, the cancer risk, and this would be, you know, what would the project's contribution be to excess cancer risk um, which is measured in um, persons per million. Um, so we look at, um, so what would the project do for a child um, measured over 30 years of exposure? The first scenario is from the beginning of construction all the way through. So that's constructions and operations that we analyze. And then the second scenario that we run is operations only. So same measurement, like 30 years of exposure of a child from, from day one, from when the project operates. So the, the first scenario was the one taken together that uh, resulted in the significant unavoidable impact conclusion. The second scenario was less than significant with mitigation. But do I understand from your comments during the presentation that in fact, um, the number, the, the um, exceeding, the numbers didn't exceed um, the standards for significant unmitigated impacts, that they were just below them, um, and it's only in the name of being super cautious because we can't really predict how this is going to work that you decided that it was a significant unmitigated impact. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. So we use two metrics. Like I said, we use excess cancer risk, mm -hmm. and we um, measure um, fine particulate matter or PM 2.5 concentration. So we use those two metrics. 
So when, he, when we analyze the construction and operations, um, the excess cancer risk, the contribution from the project, was 6.87. The significance threshold is 7. So we were very close, but just below. Um, the PM 2.5 concentration, we were well below. Okay. So that, that's actually really important for me and how I think about this project. I mean, SEEK was a really important tool. Um, this conversation, to me, points out how important it is in um, presenting us with tough choices. I mean, we need to understand the consequences of um, our actions and to the extent we still want to move forward, make findings of overriding consideration. This is a super valuable project, um, and I am willing to make findings of overriding consideration given the importance of the transit facility. Um, Supervisor, uh, Commissioner Moore and I had the opportunity to visit the facility a number of months ago, um, and if there were no other reason other than improving worker conditions, this project would be, in my mind, worthwhile um, to go forward with. So uh, I believe there are overriding considerations, um, but it is really only because your studies show that we actually are below um, the health risks that I, that I feel comfortable doing that. So thank you for that explanation. Um, and it's tough as a commissioner. I mean, we have to balance projects. It doesn't feel good approving a project that has um, a significant unmitigated impact with respect to um, toxic air contaminants. But your explanation um, is comforting, um, and this project is really important. So I am an enthusiastic supporter of it. And if I could, I, I, I could add that when we analyzed those results for, that I just quoted were for the draft EIR project. So when we considered the refined project, mm -hmm. refined, including the various construction scenarios, and the uh, refined project variant, paratransit variant, um, we found that the, their impacts, just based on the changes made between the draft EIR and these projects, were less severe. So it's moving in the right direction. Absolutely. If that gives you additional <laughs> comfort. It does. Thank you very much for pointing we that out. We just continue to call uh, like conservatively um, just because we, in the future, if the project changes, we we want to be able to take that into consideration, if that makes sense. Thank you. Thank you for that discussion. Commissioner Moore. Uh, thank you to all, and yes to all. Uh, thank you also for raising additional questions. Uh, this is a public interest project, and regarding shadow, which I'm mostly a person who has held off from approving shadows on public parks cast by private projects, this is a public interest project, a public uh, uh, interest project of highest importance, partially because it is replacing an obsolete transit facility, looks, looks into the future, how it places a contemporary building next to a park, and when on top of that housing is added, uh, my support is to let minimally sensitively uh, stewarded shadows be on the park, because as I looked through every diagram, I felt that in the end, the shadow was varied enough, a fleeting shadow and not one which permanently puts the usefulness of the spark under question. I have great faith that the participation of the friends of uh, uh, the park will indeed have done everything. I've heard them for many, many years uh, speaking on every project that even casts minimal shadows. So I feel that their stewardship of the park is the most important support uh, for this particular project. 
Uh, overall, I feel, while I was critical in questioning many aspects of the project in our last presentation, that there have been subtle refinements to the project, which gives it, give it for me, much more credibility and an architectural response that I believe raises to the level of being exceptional. Uh, as we are losing more and more part in the discussion of what constitutes good architecture and urban design, because Sacramento has taken over, uh, I want to uh, note that this project meets all, of the uh, all the expectations of a robust, productive public participation in large projects. And I regret that we'll be losing it, but I celebrate that there was that much uh, participation that many meetings and lots of good results. Uh, I am in support of every aspect of the project, and I would make a motion to uh, certify the EIR as a first step in our process of approval. Second. Thank you. Commissioner Imperial? I, together with other commissioners, are also very supportive of this project. Um, I actually also visited the site firsthand about, I believe, two years ago, mm -hmm. and it does indeed modernization. Um, and for that reason as well, in, during my conversation, I remember um, in that site visit, there were also um, conversations about you know, the shadow impact and how the SFMTA as part of the community process together with the planning um, work together with other community groups. So from that, that on, from that site visit that on, I saw the importance of this project, the kind of work that the, the SFMTA, the planning department, is trying to work with the community groups as well. Um, on top of that, one thing that really attracted that I think is the affordable housing component. And from the last conversation that we've had, that's something that I would also try to emphasize as well as we are trying to, uh, you know, at the same time, um, go looking for the sources of funding for this. So also, as far, you know, I wanna make sure that the affordable housing component is included as the first project. Um, I appreciated the uh, modification or the amendments that included the last minute, like last night, um, that there's intent to include the affordable rate units. But I guess um, I want, I'm curious as to what are the convert, um, as we're looking to the facing, um, in terms of the affordable housing funding for it. Um, where are we at right now? I just wanna hear that. Um, you know, I don't know if Meta or MoCD would give us more kind of updates, more reassurance as first, the first part of the phasing is the SFMTA facility. And then the second part of the phasing would be the housing component. Um, and it would be, it looks like two years of the first, you know, the first phase and then second on, you know, probably another um, two years. So, you know, we're looking in a way like four years um, for funding, I would assume. Is that correct? Yes, um, Commissioner, I think you're referring to the podium housing for the four years. So, right, phase one is the bus yard component, phase two being the Bryant Street component, and phase three is all the other housing that's on the podium. So, um, and I think we mentioned this at the informational session, is that all of those components, and even within housing, they have their own, each of the buildings have their own funding and financing components. And the timing of that doesn't necessarily, um, it can, but it doesn't necessarily align with the funding and financing for the bus facility, which is why we have these different phasings. Um, we're still in the process of, of securing the funding, focusing very much on that phase two for 
for housing, focusing on securing funding for phase two. However, prior to doing that, there are a number of steps, including getting through environmental entitlements, um, before we're able to secure those funding, um, those funding sources. Um, MOHD has continued to be a partner on this. There is a, um, um, some allocated funding that from MOHCD that would be used towards the Bryant Street to phase two. Um, but still, to your point, I want to be very clear, the funding for Bryant Street is not yet secured. Uh, what we're contemplating are various state funding sources, um, various tax credit sources, and working with various lenders to, to secure that. But prior to doing that, need to get through environmental entitlements, need to get through site permits, need to get through um, the selection of a, and I, I think I mentioned this in a, in a previous session, and hopefully it was shown in the, the, um, the Petrero Neighborhood Collective uh, table, but we do not have a general contractor on board for the bus facility or the Bryan Street development, but those are both processes that we're entering into shortly, um, soon. So with the contractor on board as well, we'll be able to finalize the design and take it from 100% schematic design to an appropriate level to be able to start uh, building and um, you know having a very good sense of what that process looks like, what that staging looks like um, overall. So short answer is that we haven't yet secured the financing and funding um, for all of Bryant Street and to that end have not secured it for the podium housing, but that's the reason why we have this phase approach is to have the bus yard move forward first in the first phase, um, establish a, um, a robust structural system to be able to support housing or paratransit uh, if it comes to that and really put, it, put the project to have an opportunity to be able to have housing up to a reasonable amount of time before SFMTA can elect to move forward with a refined project variant. But first and foremost, the idea is to get to a housing maximization of 465 units. I have a question in terms of like, um, in terms of the, um, the paratransit variant. Let's say, what would be the process where um, SFMTA would elect to the paratransit variant? Sure. I might yeah, I can answer that. So um, as we mentioned, right, the housing maximization option is, is the primary option for the SFMTA. And so when we've, we've said today, um, you know, a reasonable amount of time, um, those, that timing for, um, you know, the various phases of the housing, when paratransit would come up, would be um, identified and worked out in those project agreements that will go before the Board of Supervisors um, later this year. Um, but from our perspective, uh, you know, I would say reasonable amount of time is something like five to 10 years um, for, for the housing. And then the SFMTA does have, you know, depending on the situation at that time, we do have the option to do two-year extensions of, of that. So, you know, we can look at, you know, let's say, you know, there's the, they're almost there. You know, depending on where the housing is, we have the option to um, to extend that. But that's that's the time frame that we're looking at. Yeah, thank you very much for that explanation. Um, Ms. Fang, do you want to add something? Caroline Fang with Meta, Mission Economic Development Agency. We are one of the three developers with Tabernacle, CDC, and with YCD. And um, as Chris, the project manager for um, the Petrero Neighborhood Collaborative, was suggesting, we have been working closely with MoCD. Um, the challenge is with the city's limited affordable housing funding, they have been able to commit up to $35 million. And um, in order to make all the phases happen, we will need um, much more than that from the, the local funding ideally, and um, with the state 
um, moving some of their competitiveness for state financing towards um, looking at other neighborhoods. Um, we've also been looking at that as, as a close um, area where we, we need to be thinking about that carefully. That said, um, we are committed to the affordability of the building um, going as deep as possible, as well as making sure that we can maximize the housing. Um, one of our, our main outlooks for this year in 2024 is um, both looking at the Affordable Housing Sustainable Communities funding with the state, as well as locally looking at at the local housing bond Prop A and in the future potentially the regional housing bond um, as a way of augmenting the, the city's funding to be able to support this project. Thank you very much. And I just want to emphasize that just because um, in terms of, you know, we all know the, um, for me, it's very important that um, to know about the timeline and that what is being promised to the public when it comes to affordable housing is actually being materialized. So that's why I'm questioning about the process in terms of what would it what would it take when uh, when um, when part of the statement is like we would exhaust every means what would that mean so thank you for that explanation and ready to vote yes awesome thank you for those questions and certainly need more than 35 million we know we have some money um going towards the project and we've got a great team that is certainly very young on that commissioner Hoffman? this is just 11 correct or is this everything? There We're just a, doing the EIR right now. Uh, yeah, there's yeah, a, EIR, right. EIR was on its own. So if there's nothing further, commissioners, there is a motion that has been seconded to certify the environmental impact report on that motion. Commissioner Braun? Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commissioner President Tanner? Aye. So moved, commissioners, that motion passes unanimously 7 to 0. I think we have our action items on slide two of the staff presentation, if it's helpful for anyone who would care to make motions um, regarding our remaining items. Commissioner Diamond? I would move to approve all of the remaining uh, action items on this project. Second. Second. Thank you, commissioners, on that motion then to adopt Hold sequel. on, commissioner. Sorry, I still have another, a couple comments, a couple questions. Uh, huge, huge supporter of public transit. Uh, not only does it enable the city to function properly, it also creates a lot of uh, job opportunities for uh, you know, working class people. And don't forget, this work is dangerous, very, very dangerous. Those, those two, those two uh, metal lines you see up above the trains, that's very, very dangerous, 600 volts DC. You don't just get electrocuted, you, you blow up and die. So I, I cannot put um, how, how important safety is um, in any, any more words than that. Um, also, I'm thrilled with how this city has been addressing uh, greenhouse gas um, consumption and, and what we've been doing as far as solar power, um, energy storage, and electric vehicle uh, promotion. And uh, I've mentioned before in the past that when we start with these new technologies, emerging technologies, it's, ex it's especially um, important to be very, very careful that we don't have any slip-ups or accidents um, because uh, this, this can be potentially dangerous environments. Um, question for the project sponsor. Um, there's going to be a pretty hefty uh, electrical load installed in this building, correct? Yes, I will have Tim Kemp from our project team address that question. So just while he's coming up there, for the other commissioners, um, you know, like I've said, this, this work can be potentially really dangerous, and 
um, even more so when we have you know large capacity uh, buses uh, holding these high voltage batteries and it, it can be as as dangerous uh, more than you think so if one of these buses were to accidentally catch on fire um, literally the, the fire department cannot put it out so in all seriousness if buses these buses were to catch fire believe it or not the safest thing to do is literally just let them burn I don't know how long they would burn for and you know knock on wood like I said we've we've had a really good track record um, with these emerging technologies and not having any accidents but what uh, is the fire department signed off on on this or or anything right um, hello Tim Kemp project manager for the project I work for public works um, delivering the project and supporting the MTA so I think uh, Commissioner Koppel you're, you're referring to the battery electric bus fleet right and so actually while this project is making provisions so that the facility can be converted in the future the plan is not for day one for this facility to operate battery electric buses so that was a function of the MTA's uh, revision to their uh, fleet plan and the evolution that has happened over the last year or so. <clears throat> so as a result of that, the, the facility is making provisions to have space available for that infrastructure to come in at a future time, but not uh, currently. So actually the scope of the project that the, that the building department and the fire department are looking at right now is, is not looking at battery electric bus since it won't be operable uh, under the current um, construction entitlements through that process. So that'll be something that will have to be analyzed at a future time. Okay, great. Yeah. That, that pretty much sums it up. Just wanted to be on the safe side of things. Again, very supportive of uh, our EIR staff and the, the project uh, in general. And, and I did want to just add to that, that you know we are building the, the building with a fire suppression system that is designed for that eventual transition to battery electric buses um, if we do ever move from the trolley buses that the SFMTA has. Thank you. Any more questions? Great. So I think we have our motions, motion with many parts <laughs> that's been made and seconded. Indeed. So that motion to adopt CEQA findings, a, recommend, a recommendation to adopt, to amend the general plan, um, approve the code amendments and zoning map amendments and adopt shadow findings, and finally approve with conditions um, the conditional use authorization on that motion. Commissioner Braun. Aye. Commissioner Ruiz? Aye. Commissioner Diamond? Aye. Commissioner Imperial? Aye. Commissioner Koppel? Aye. Commissioner Moore? Aye. And Commissioner President Tanner? Aye. So moved, Commissioners. That motion passes unanimously 7 to 0. Very well done. Thank you all. Thank you all. That will place us on the final item on your agenda today, number 13, case number 2022-00-0112 ENV for the Islias Creek Bridge Project. This is the draft EIR for your review and comment. Like 80%. Yeah. That's like 80%. I know, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or 95%. Yeah, right. Yeah. Each. 
Uh, good afternoon. Can I get the overhead, please? Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, President Tanner and Planning Commissioners. My name is Liz White, Environmental Planner, and I'm here to present on the Environmental Review for the Isleas Creek Bridge Project. I am joined today by Chelsea Fordham, Principal Environmental Planner, Thomas Reutman, Project Manager from Public Works, and Hava Cronenberg, Project Manager from SFMTA. The item before you is review and comment on the draft environmental impact report or EIR for the Islaeus Creek Bridge project. No approval of this document is requested at this time. The purpose of today's hearing is to take public comment on the adequacy, accuracy, and completeness of the draft EIR pursuant to the California Environmental Quality Act or CEQA. The Historic Preservation Commission reviewed and commented on the draft EIR on December 20th, 2023, and a letter with their comments was sent to the Planning Commission on Monday, January 8th, 2024. Before beginning the draft ER presentation, Thomas will provide an overview of the proposed project and project objectives. Thanks, Liz. Good afternoon, commissioners. As Shown in this image, the Islas Creek Bridge is located on 3rd Street over the Islas Creek Channel in San Francisco's Bayview neighborhood. The land uses surrounding the bridge are primarily industrial and commercial. I'd like to briefly mention the impetus for initiating the project in the first place. Caltrans performs periodic inspections of highway bridges and local roads. In 2011, they assigned a national bridge inventory rating of 20 out of 100, or poor, in terms of structural sufficiency to the Islas Creek Bridge. As the bridge continues to deteriorate over time, it's imperative that the bridge is repaired or replaced to maintain continued safe operation. The objectives of the project are to improve the bridge's resilience to sea level rise impact, address the existing bridge's seismic deficiencies, minimize construction-related transit impact, improve multimodal transportation safety, increase operational utility to muni light rail operations, ensure the bridge is operationally and structurally adequate for its entire design life, and provide a bicycle facility as part of the project that can eventually be incorporated into the city's bicycle route planning. The project would involve the demolition and removal of the existing bridge and the configuration of the new bridge would be similar to the existing bridge. The new bridge would accommodate a center 26 foot wide dedicated light rail trackway, two travel lanes in each direction and a new pedestrian bicycle path on the bridge. The new bridge would meet current structural and seismic standards and would be resilient to predicted sea level rise impacts up to the year 2100. Working with the city's existing right-of-way constraints, the new bridge's bottom and top of deck would be approximately 5.2 feet and three feet higher, respectively, than the existing bridge, accommodating for future sea level rise. Project 
construction is anticipated to occur for approximately 24 months, and during this time, no vehicle, light rail, or pedestrian traffic would be allowed through the project area. The project would use typical eight-hour work shifts during daylight hours and no nighttime work is anticipated. Public Works and SFMTA would develop a traffic management plan that will include a detailed detour plan for vehicles, bicyclists, and pedestrians. A temporary bus bridge plan would replace the existing T-3rd light rail service and would involve a combination of bus and rail service during construction. The T-3rd light rail service would run between Chinatown Station and the UCSF Medical Center Station, and T-3rd bus service would run between Market Street and the Bayshore Sunnydale Station via the Illinois Street Bridge. Detour plans would also be developed for other buses and vehicles that use the Islas Creek Bridge. And now I'm going to turn the presentation back to Liz, but I'm available for any follow-up questions on the project design. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. Now I'll give an overview of the project's impacts and mitigation measures. Next slide, please. The proposed project would have significant impacts to archaeological and tribal cultural resources, construction-related transit delay, health risk impacts to off-site worker receptors at Fire Station 25, biological resources, and historic resources. Impacts to all other topics will be less than significant. Next slide. The proposed project identified mitigation measures that reduce most impacts to less than significant. For example, mitigation measure MAQ3, requirements for off-road construction equipment, would reduce significant health risk impacts to worker receptors at Fire Station 25 to less than significant levels, and the five biological mitigation measures shown on this slide would reduce significant impacts to less than significant. However, the impacts to construction-related transit delay and historic resources would remain significant and unavoidable even with mitigation measures. A Caltrain's evaluation of the bridge's historic significance determined that the bridge is eligible for listing in the National Register as an example of the art modern style applied to the bridge. Because the bridge is a historic resource under CEQA, impacts to historic resources, resources would remain significant and unavoidable even with mitigation, as the project would demolish a historic resource. Regarding the construction-related transportation impacts of the project, the EIR describes the existing transit conditions in the area surrounding the bridge. In 2020, the SFMTA published the Bayview Community-Based Transportation Plan and identified that decades of institutional racism and disinvestment have left residents in this neighborhood with limited mobility options. The plan identified that Bayview-Hunters Point residents use transit less frequently than other areas of San Francisco and cite low reliability and long travel times as key factors. In the report, the SFMTA acknowledged the need to improve the T-3rd line's reliability. Since publication of the plan, the SFMTA made changes to address the line's unreliability, including retiming signals along 3rd Street and ending the practice of regular switchbacks on the line where T-3rd Street cars are turned around north of the Bayview neighborhood. These transit conditions were considered when analyzing the project's construction-related delays to the transit line. To reduce transit delay impacts during construction, the draft EAR identifies mitigation measure MTR1, reduce transit travel times for T3rd Street riders. The SFMTA is currently evaluating the exact measures that could result from implementation of this mitigation. 
Given that this evaluation is ongoing and may be modified based on community input prior to being finalized, the project's potentially, <coughs> excuse me, the project's potentially significant construction-related delays to T3rd Street riders would remain significant and unavoidable even with mitigation. And, and next slide. Now I'll give an overview of the project's alternatives considered. The project team looked at a variety of different alternatives, including six alternatives that were considered but rejected due to infeasibility. Ultimately, two alternatives were carried forward for additional analysis. The first alternative is the no project alternative and would involve no demolition or construction of improvements to the Isleas Creek Bridge. The second alternative is the preservation alternative, which would demolish the existing bridge and replace the bridge at the same elevation as the proposed project. This alternative would salvage, rehabilitate, and reinstall as many of the character-defining features of the original bridge as feasible, including the control tower. The seismic retrofit of the control tower would also require a longer construction duration, as well as more in-water construction, therefore increasing the impacts of this alternative. And in closing, I'll discuss the next steps in the environmental review process, as well as future public outreach phases. So as shown here, the draft AAR comment period closes on January 22nd. After the close of the public comment period, the department will prepare and then publish a responses to comments document to all relevant written and verbal comments received. The Planning Commission will then hold a hearing to decide whether to certify the EIR, and this is tentatively anticipated to occur this spring or summer. Uh, next slide, thank you. Uh, environmental review occurs in the early stages of a project's development process and includes outreach to the community on the project's environmental impacts. Accordingly, the first phase of the project's outreach is associated with the environmental review processes, which we've discussed here today. And the second phase of project outreach would occur from spring 2024 to spring 2025. The purpose of this outreach would be to seek input from community members and discuss logistic, logistic concerns regarding the bridge's closure and associated transportation plan during construction. The third phase of outreach would occur once the detailed design and construction timeline are finalized. Public Works and SFMTA would host a series of public meetings outlining a detailed transit plan, detour routes, major events and milestones, and anticipated construction disruptions. Throughout construction, Public Works and SFMTA would continue to engage with the community. Next slide, please. Anyone who would like to comment on the draft AR in writing may email comments to project at sfgov.org or mail comments to me at the address shown here by 5 p.m. on January 22nd. You may also use the same contact information to request a hard copy of the draft AAR or a copy of, written, of the written responses to comments. And this concludes my presentation. Thank you. Thank you. With that, we should open up public comment. Members of the public, this is your opportunity to address the commission on the accuracy and adequacy of the draft environmental impact report. Hi, Commissioners. Uh, long time to see. Um, to be honest, as the San Francisco Transit Riders, we're pretty concerned with this project. Um, we mostly just want to make sure that the Bayview's considerations are really taken into account, given its uh, the historical injustices can that have happened. Speak a little closer to the microphone, just so we can make sure we get your comments. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Um, just given all of the like uh, historical injustices that have happened to the neighborhood, uh, it would. 
it, it would mean a lot to us. Um, just given the state of the bridge also, we understand the necessity for this project. It's like, I, we don't want to go through with just a no project option. Um, but the city spent a long time building out the T-line uh, to connect the Bayview to the downtown. And it's become a really crucial transit line for the Bayview with a lot of people with a lot of thoughts on it and a lot of experiences uh, just going throughout it. And two years is a long time for that critical connection, which has just recently opened up to then be paused. Um, just for the same type of uh, service to be then again reinstated um, back in. It just it, it will show a lot of um, uh, inability to rely on the service um, and just sort of further reduce the trust and reliance on public transit and you know SF City Gov. Uh, we really don't want to encourage more people to uh, take private vehicles and start relying more on private vehicles during a time when we really should be doing all we can to, you know, get people out of the cars and, you know, onto the trains and buses and really continuing to push that. Uh, we've also seen bridges restored and rebuilt on a much shorter timeline, just sort of throughout the state and even in the city. Uh, you know, again, I'm not a planning expert myself, so I don't want to try and push that, but like it's, it's a little hard to imagine uh, that if this wasn't, you know, a critical highway connection, it wouldn't be built on a shorter timeline with more consideration towards how this will affect its, its users. Um, just sort of before moving forward with this, and again, understanding that this is really early in the, in the project, um, you know, decision and approval process. Uh, we really want the department to work closely with SFMTA to create uh, and develop either alternatives to the current project proposals um, or ones that really minimize impacts the T and if nothing else, just taking the opportunity to drastically improve the service of the T when it comes back from a project like this. You know, really making sure that the neighborhood experience is taken into account. Um, the last thing we want to do is cut off the neighborhood from the rest of the city and sow more distrust in the neighborhood for San Francisco city government. And that's something that uh, us as the transit riders are something uh, we're really concerned with. Um, you know, we really want MTA and planning to have another project similar to like the Petraria Arts project where this is one single unified vision that we can move forward. And I think that's something we can really do. Um, anyways, thank you for your time. We really do appreciate it. Last call for public comment on the draft environmental impact report. Seeing none, public comment is closed. Commissioners? Commissioner Moore? Actually, the comments made by the public echo some of my own. Uh, thank you for so clearly verbalizing your concerns. Uh, the uh, severed connection for 24 months uh, to this critical area, which we are now finally extending a functional transit network to, which can be improved, is of concern to me. Mm -hmm. uh, the area surrounding routes that would be alternative routes should be very carefully uh, examined because mostly it is PDR and very difficult to maneuver. Uh, the PDR traffic in that area has its own rules, its own timing, its own difficulties. And if I sometimes drive through there because it's kind of a fascinating area, it's actually kind of scary. Mm -hmm. To overlay on that a functioning people-oriented transportation substitute network is not going to be easy. So I hope that whatever is being done in the public process where you are working out the particulars, mm -hmm. that there is a give and take of how, how this will work for everybody. 
the construction industry works with different kinds of vehicles, different hours. However, they are more or less a 24-hour operation. When you are there, it is actually, it's fascinating, but it's kind of scary. Uh, so I hope that while that is not particularly addressed yet here in what's in front of us, that there is very, very careful attention paid to uh, not severing or uh, underserving any functionality that is required for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. And um, particularly, I think our expanding population in Bayview Hunters Point uh, mm -hmm. has absolute priority that what we are offering a substitute is better what it's, what it's even now. How to do that, I don't have any idea. Uh, one may add water taxis or whatever, but there has to be an equity uh, that equals or expands on functionality. So those are my comments, uh, and it is what it is. Yeah, I would second uh, Commissioner Moore's comments in terms of the alternatives being at least in terms of efficiency, timeliness, getting to primary destinations, being really, really carefully looked at. And I think there was a note that, you know, construction would kind of happen during regular hours, but to the speaker's point, you know, and to the location, some days there could be more longer 24-hour construction without, I think, limited disruption to residents being nearby. So um, I know that's part of how highway work often will happen, I, and I'm not a construction expert, so I know everything doesn't necessarily have night work, and night work has its own costs and expenses and impacts um, to the project. But just to think about how could the timeline be shortened, what would it take, what are the impacts environmentally if the timeline is shortened in order to just you know, not break folks' habit of taking transit. We saw this during the pandemic. People may have taken transit to work, then they stopped for a long time, and then they never restarted again. And a similar thing can happen in a neighborhood we already have low transit use. Um, and so folks who are taking transit will find alternatives, perhaps, if the transit route alternatives are not sufficient or efficient enough, and then may not return to those transit uses. So if we can think about how to shorten that timeline, that'd be great, and make sure we are looking at any construction-related impacts or environmental-related impacts to the shortened timeline. That would be hoove us, and then we have the option to do those shortening if we have the budget and the capacity to have those shortened timelines. Commissioner Diamond? So I noted in the document that it said that the tracks were recently put in over the bridge, or at least not too long ago, and now you're taking them out because we have to take the bridge down. And I'm wondering what the decision-making process was that resulted in, did you only find out that the bridge needed to be demolished after you'd already put the tracks in? Or did you put the tracks in knowing that the bridge was going to come down, um, but you still thought it was worthwhile to have it there for a temporary period of time because it was so beneficial to the neighborhood. It felt like there's, I need more explanation around the decision-making engaged with that. Thank you. Good questions. Hopefully we'll gain answers when we hear this project uh, again. Any other comments from commissioners on this topic? Commissioner Moore? Uh, this gets a little bit into the weeds, but we have b major bridges built in the Bay uh, Area for the last 20, 30 years, Carquinas, et cetera. And sometimes an old bridge is being used uh, for functionality while the new bridge is slightly built alongside uh, the existing bridge. Uh, I am not really familiar exactly where the limitations on the alignments are. Uh, but we do know that the T-line can make 90-degree turns. So uh, my question would be, have you considered an alternative location while the new bridge is being built, the existing bridge remains functional? Creative solutions from the dais today. So we'll see what we can, what they can come up with. 
Any other comments or questions on this draft EIR? All right. Thank you, commissioners. Thank you, staff, as well. Oh, folks. That's it. Oh, that's it. All right. Uh, happy New Year. Happy 2024. We are adjourned. Don't go to cold. <laughs>